So Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to pick up. We're going to finish out the, the commandments this morning. The 10 words, the Decalogue that the Lord spoke and the people heard at the base of Mount Sinai. Remember, that's their position. Moses and all the people are at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're not on the mountain and God is speaking aloud and all the people hear every word that the Lord is speaking, booming forth from that mountain. And it must have been a stunning moment where God spoke so clearly, not to one man, not to a small group, but to the entirety of of Israel gathered there at the foot of the mountain. We'll pick up in verse 12. As the Lord spoke, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And again, Lord, we approach your word this morning with trembling and yet with boldness because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your word and ask Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us today and help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what does a pastor do when he has two and a half weeks of vacation? Absolutely nothing. A couple of Sundays back, my family ferried out to Shaw Island. Uh, Paul and Marie Anderson have a house out there. Thanks, Paul and Marie, for, for giving it to us. For the week, we got to go out there and just relax and walk on the beach and look for sea glass. You know, sea glass is an interesting thing because what it really is, if you boil it all down, is softened litter. It's just litter. That's, but anyway, so when we go out there and, and pick up these little treasures and just relax and enjoy ourselves, well, two Sundays back was when we departed. We left out from Anacortes and ferried over to Shaw, and as we rolled down the windows of our van. We pulled up into the ferry and, uh, and they were telling us at the time, hey, you know, if you can stay in your car, that's probably best. So we just all, you know, kicked back in the van for the hour ride over there, rolled down the windows and we were immediately reminded of the times in which we live. Voice booming over the loudspeaker said, please do not leave backpacks or bags unattended. Terrorism. And please wear face coverings unless you remain in your car. Pandemic. And I sat there thinking, my, what an age, <laughs> what a season that these are the concerns and far more than that, riots and violence and, and all that, you know, is, is going on in the world. Well, well, we settled in for the, for the cruise over and I noticed the ferry had Wi-Fi, So I was like, Hey church. And so I pulled up my phone and, uh, and tuned in to the, to the live stream to listen to Jake and to see what was going on. And I, and I turned it on just in time to hear Jake introducing 2 Timothy, which he's been teaching from the last couple of Sundays. And thank you, Jake. You did a fantastic job. I did go back and listen, by the way, to, the, uh, yeah, to all of it, both, both days. But I went and, and he was introducing it. And 2 Timothy, of all Paul's letters, it's my favorite. It's the most personal, it's the most intimate, it's his swan song. As you may know, it's the final letter of the apostle to young pastor Timothy. And so Jake, in introducing it, opened up with a number of verses from the book, from the letter. I'd like you to turn over there for a moment, if you will. We're going to start there and then come back to Exodus chapter 20 in a, in a minute or so. But 2 Timothy, as we were listening, and I, and I was paying attention to Jake's introduction, I was making my little notes in red pen of what I needed to correct when I got back. And <laughs> no, no notes, no red pen. 
But he, he spoke one verse out of all the verses that he gave throughout the book, throughout the letter to introduce it, one verse that hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, I know this never happens with you, but sometimes a verse is read by a pastor teaching and it takes you to a different place and you realize 15 minutes have gone by and you haven't heard another word he said, which is why I had to go back and listen to it again, because you get caught by the Spirit on one word, one verse, and he takes you somewhere else. And you know what? That's good. That's how God speaks to us many times. Don't ever feel bad that you're like, oh no, what, what did Rick say the last half hour? I don't know, because God had me over here. You go with the Lord. You let him be your teacher. And so I was just taken away because I heard something, a verse, I've, I must have read a thousand times, but I heard it as if I had never heard it before. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. In the last days, difficult times will come. What should unsettle, what should bring some degree of trembling or fear, difficult times, oh no, is this coming upon us? Oh, I don't want to be here at that time. I read that and I felt peace and rest. I, it, was, it was such a weird dynamic. In the last days, difficult times, will come now. Now Jesus had already given several signs of the last days. That phrase first uttered by Jacob, uttered many times by the Hebrew prophets and repeated in the New Testament by Peter, by Paul, by, by Yaakov, by the pastor who wrote Hebrews. And here he says it again, the last days. Well, Jesus gave the birth pangs. Remember those, Matthew 24, Mark 13. He talked about the birth pangs, earthquakes, famine, wars and rumors of wars, perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, all these things that we see on the increase and the intensification in our day. And of course, as we've recently noted, Jesus mentioned another sign of the difficult times of the end. He mentioned lawlessness. Boy, do we see that at work right now. But all these signs of the end, as horrible as they may sound, don't forget that they are leading up to what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 10, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, there are birth pangs, but the Lord's going to bring to birth what he promised. And it's our great hope. But add to the list of all the birth pangs, this birth pang, difficult times. It seems like almost a blanket statement, difficult times will come. What kind of difficulty? And you could start listing off the birth pangs, but difficult times in and of themselves, that word difficult is interesting. In the Greek, it's halopoi, and halopoi means perilous. Or what one translator said, hard to do, hard to take, hard to approach, hard to bear. Difficult. Paul described the root issue of these difficult times. If you read on in verse two of 2 Timothy three, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. If you look down in verse four, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and haters of bees. Sorry. Up in verse two again, he says, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. And then again in verse five, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. But Paul talks about three different kinds of lovers in this little passage, lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, which is the root issue of difficult times. And by the way, those who love pleasure rather than God hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. These types of love leave you powerless. Loving self and loving pleasure and loving money rather than loving God. Jesus said, Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Rogers was right. And we get into that in the second half of the commands now, the love of neighbor as self. First half we talk about loving God. And now we're into the second half of the commandments, which is all focused on my love for those around me, others other than myself. To love God, we must love people. It is such a simple statement. It is such a Christian statement. And yet it is so easily forgotten in our behavior. To love God, we must love people. To love like God is to put other people ahead of myself, ahead of my money, ahead of whatever is my desire or my pleasure. That loving God, and it's amazing, I don't know any other faith, any other religion that comes close to this where loving God is so intimately intertwined with loving people. That the expression of my God love is my love for others. That's how you see it. That's how you know. Jesus says, that's how they're going to know you're my followers. If you love one another. That's the, the measure. I cannot say or actually love God unless I'm willing to love my neighbor as myself. That's the bottom line. That's the deal. It's how it works. John said in 1 John 4.20, one of the toughest verses in all the Bible, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You have to love your neighbor if you profess to love God. Simple, but again, one of the greatest challenges that we face. You know the old phrase I've thrown out a few times? Makes us all uncomfortable. You only got, love God as much as the person you love the least. With the 10 words, the Decalogue, the, the 10 commandments, the 10 commandments, yes, God eternally connected how we treat each other to himself. He said, this is how it's gonna work. The horizontal and the vertical relationships are inseparately, or, or, or in inseparably interwoven. J. Alec Mottier puts it this way. He says, pretty well every society counts murder, adultery, and theft as forbidden acts, unless you're protesting in Portland. Add to this, he says, and, and to this extent, the Decalogue is nothing new. That is, you know, murder, adultery, theft, the Decalogue says don't do this. Most uh, civilized uh, nations say the same thing. But, he says, it is unique, the Ten Commandments, and typical of the Older Testament to make no distinction between crimes, that is, committed against people, and sins committed against God. That's what the Bible teaches, that if I am committing crimes against others, I am committing sin against God. That's how intimate love of God and, and love of people is. I ask the question, how do we see our way clear in difficult times of these last days? And the answer is very simple. Love God, love people. That's how you'll do it. That's how we'll stop the striving. That's how we'll erase the stress. That's how we will remain unified as followers of Jesus. We love God and we love each other. And that must be our standard. In verse 12, Yahweh Elohe, the Lord our God, begins to pilot us in this direction of loving our neighbor as ourself. And with the fifth word in the 10, the fifth commandment, it begins right at home. Look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. We might immediately say, you don't know what my father and my mother has done to me, and I don't see that caveat. All it says is honor them. It's not about their behavior. It's about mine. Honor your father and your mother. Honor is, check this out, it's the word kabed. 
Kabed in the Hebrew, which is the same word we read as glorify. It is the same word used anytime you see the word glorify God, it's kabed. So you could read this, glorify your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And I think, isn't that going too far? But the reality is that this command is ground zero for human beings learning how to love God. It starts at home. It starts as little children because our parents, good or bad, our parents are the first view we have of the image of God. Which is why so many people have difficulty with God because their parents don't bear that image well. And we recognize that and know it's part of the dysfunction in our world and has always been that mom or dad, because of evil behavior or sinful behavior toward their children, will get in the way of that God relationship. But that's how God designed it, was that a child would be born and would begin to recognize discipline and authority and love in their parents that would then transfer or translate to love of God. To be able to then accept discipline from God and the authority of God. It's the starting line of accepting who God is. God set up human parents to, to bring kids in that direction. It's not God's fault that we went the other way. But that was the standard from the beginning. It's, it's looking at our parents who we can see and learning to love them and obey them so that we can learn to love and obey a God who we cannot see. This is so important to the Lord. Look over a couple or one book to Leviticus chapter 19. And we are fast approaching the book of Leviticus. That's going to be fun. Lord willing and the saints don't rise. We'll get there this fall. But Leviticus chapter 19, he underscores some of these things. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, verse 2. Leviticus 19, 2. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence, or fear is the word, his mother and his father. And you shall keep my Shabbats. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Check that out. You need to fear mom and dad. Oh, so, so glorify your father and your mother, honor, and here reverence or fear your mother and your father. These are words used for God. Fearing God, glorifying God. Reverence and fear, again, same thing, the fear of the Lord. That's the same word used when, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. Now it's used of parents, of mother and of father. Not to be afraid of, but to have deep respect and to hold in awe. Hold in awe your mother. Hold in awe your father. But notice what God did in Leviticus 19. He took this reverence, this honoring of parents, and he shot it right to the top of the list. He even speaks it before the keeping of Shabbat, before avoiding idolatry, because in the home, that's where it begins. That's where the relationship with God is, or at least should be birthed in the home from the parents. And so I called this back in chapter 20 of Exodus, I call this the hinge verse of the commandments. Of the Ten Commandments, the fifth is actually the hinge between the first four and, and the last five. That fifth commandment hinges because it puts us in that place of learning how not only to love God, but to love each other, to love other people. It's a loving God, loving people position, and it's in the home with the parents, it's either where it is learned or left off. It's where loving God is received or rejected. And quoting this verse, Paul, uh, going back to the fifth word, uses it to describe what he would call the ideal fam family situation. Ephesians chapter six, verse one, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. By the way, fellow parents, this whole system works best when parents remember that their children bear the divine image of God just as they as parents do. All are created in his image, all us human beings. And therefore, while mom and dad are to be honored, children are to be viewed by parents as creations of God and treated as such. And when that happens, the children can honor the parents and the parents are not going to exasperate the children. And speaking of difficult times in the last days, it's interesting, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 20 says, he who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in times of darkness. So a good measure or a good standard for moving through difficult times is love and honor of parents. But get this, Paul points out that this command is the first and, and truly it's the only commandment with a promise. Commandment with a promise. In verse 12 again, he says that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. My dad would often do this. He would remind me of the fifth commandment children obey your parents and then he would say do you want to live son <laughs> I'd say don't provoke me dad <laughs> but listen this doesn't have to do with the quantity of lifespan it has to do with the quality of a life lived and I can prove it to you see when he says that your days may be prolonged he's not saying honor father and mother and you'll live a long time. He's saying, honor father and mother, and the time you live will be long. What's the difference? The difference is the difference between the first and the last Adam. See, Adam lived 930 years. That's 334,800 days. But they were not good days. Quality of life for Adam? Well, I'll let God describe it to you. Because the son rebelled against his father, Genesis 3.17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And I still have that problem in my backyard. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Adam lived long, but because he rebelled against his father, they were long, hard days. It was not a life of quality, though there was quantity. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, only lived 33, 33 and a half short years but they were days of deepest quality. John 8, 49, Jesus said, I honor my father. And he said to the Pharisees, and you dishonor me. John 17, verse four, I glorified you on the earth, father, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He honored his father, glorified his father. Isaiah 53, verse 10 then tells us, explains to us, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. Listen, he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. See, the quality of life for Jesus both then and now are clearly seen in his love. His love both of the Father but also of people. Because he loved and honored God, he loved people. And because he loved people, there was a great joy there. Even though his life was a life of sorrow, a short life of sorrow, there was a deeper joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the kind of life worth living. A life that for all the difficulties of these times, for all of the struggle that you might face, a life of joy in the Lord. Now please hear this before we move on to the next command. Whatever your family situation has been, be it good and pleasant or striving and difficult, be it hurtful or ugly, you have a father. You have a father. Now my dad was a jerk. You, you have a father. My dad never spoke to me. You have a father. 
My dad didn't understand me. You have a father. I didn't even have a dad. You have a father in the Lord. And to me, more than anything else, the fifth word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path that directs me to that wonderful truth. I have a father. Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I have had this conversation with more people coming through this fellowship over the years who have said I've had a difficult upbringing or I didn't have a father in the house or my relationship with my parents is just so bad and so messed up, devastating or no relationship at all. If that's you, you have a father you can honor. Honor him. Live now to revere and to honor him. Even if you have parents who have gone on before, Parents with whom you had a difficult relationship and now there's no fixing that. You honor your father now. You honor him. You have a father who loves you. Keep your lamp lit in these difficult times. Glorify God. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And from here on out, each one of the words pops with the most basic word of parental discipline, no. (laughs) No. To read this in the Hebrew would, would be to read no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no bearing false witness. No, 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 no. Hand away from the stove. No. No stealing the peanut butter and jelly sandwich from your sister. Or in our case, from your brother. That was the funniest thing. I will never forget Corey and Hannah when they were little. I think I've told this story years ago that we heard Corey yelling in the other room. room. We ran into the room. They're running round and round the couch. They both had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Hannah ate hers completely. Corey still had half of his. She jumped up, grabbed half of his, and is running around the room, shoving it in her mouth as fast as she can before mom and dad come in and stop the procedure. No stealing. And no is a word that all parents are familiar with. Those who aren't, those who say, "Ah, I don't want to say no to my child. Well, you're an idiot. (laughs) No saying idiot in your sermons, Rick. (laughs) Hey, listen, from here on out, the whole Decalogue is is a series of no's, but they're also broad-based. Understand this, they are are a big picture. I I shared this a few Wednesdays ago. In fact, the, the Ten Commandments are the forest view of the law, of Torah. The forest view encapsulated Ten Commands that are larger, they're, they're generic. Here's the forest, but don't miss the forest for the trees. Here's the forest view, and we talked about that in chapters 21 through 23, you get into the woods. And he begins to then explain what does no stealing mean? What does no murder mean? How does this play out in society? Here it's just no, 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 no. Let me be clear with you, but it's big picture. The sixth command, no murder. That includes generically all premeditated vengeance. We're not not talking about justified warfare, not talking about manslaughter or accidental. We're talking about premeditated vengeance or hateful intentional striking down. No, God says. Word number seven, no adultery. My friends, that includes any and all sexual activity outside of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman, period. Anything outside of marriage of a sexual nature, God says, no, no. The eighth word, no stealing. That one is much broader than you might think as well because it's the theft of any personal property which goes from office pins to human trafficking. No. The ninth word, no bearing false witness. Now, you hear that, you think, in terms of a courtroom. Don't lie under oath. 
but it's inclusive. Bearing false witness, note that it is no bearing false witness against your neighbor. And it speaks of all lying, gossip, backstabbing, and slander of another person. No. But go back to the sixth word. No murder, he says. I've shared before that the rabbis say, if you murder one, you murder generations. And it's absolutely true because every life that is taken from this planet, all the lives that would have come through that life are destroyed. No murder. The Lord put such a high value, get this, understand, such a high value on human life that his punishment for murder is the death penalty. And it's not just in Torah. This is in the Noahic covenant, which you Bible students know is for all people given to all mankind, beginning with Noah and family and everyone who's come since, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. God places the highest value on earth on human life. Now, Christians will read this and, and they will argue the point to a degree, which is always interesting that we would ever argue with God, but they'll ask the question, well, isn't then capital punishment murder? How can, how can we do this? If a man sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So we're gonna punish the murderer by murdering him? How does that work? Please understand, capital punishment is not murder, it is justice. It's sending the murderer to meet the maker. <laughs> And you know what? It's something we don't comprehend very well because we are so viewing life as limited and temporal. We think about right now, well, how could, how could we take this man's life? And God says, you need to send him to me. Doesn't mean, listen, that the murderer can't be saved. But it does mean that the intentional murderer needs to go on to be dealt with by God himself because God so values human life. His view is always the eternal view. Jesus put a finer point on it, bringing it into the realm of loving your neighbor as yourself. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 verse 21, and you can keep your finger in Exodus 20 and in Matthew 5 for a few moments. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins to speak back to, talk about the commands, commands which he gave, by the way, but now he is giving a finer understanding, a clearer point to these words. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If you read those words from Jesus, you think, who can avoid that? Anyone here not called someone a fool at some point in your life? Maybe you didn't use the exact word. I just used idiot. So am I now in threat of the fiery hell? Jesus takes it to this whole new level, the, the level of rash and careless words, perhaps just spoken in anger or spoken offhandedly or spoken in gossip, but we didn't really mean it that way, but that's what we said. And Jesus says, if you go to that place, you are in danger of hell itself. There are three words for anger in the New Testament three that are most used, and they're very specific, and this particular word you need to know is orgizo, orgizo, which means a smoldering indignation. It's the fuming burn of a bottled up but intensifying, a building anger. Reminds me of fire pits on the beach in Southern California growing up. We used to go out to the beach and, and there were always signs out that said, do not walk through the fire pits. 
Because a lot of times the fire pits were just ground level and there was sand got kicked into the pits. In fact, people would put out the fires, those coal fires that they would build to roast hot dogs or whatever the night before or a couple nights before, and they'd just throw sand over it to put it out. The thing is, those coals would sit underneath the sand and they would just smolder and they could get hotter and hotter. And if you walk on them, you burn your feet. This became a real problem in Southern California. That's the idea behind this word. It's like this anger that's buried, but it is seething. It is fuming. It is building. And it's the same word, orgizo, when Jesus says so clearly, anyone who becomes angry, orgizo, with his brother shall be guilty. It's that same word that is used of God's wrath. Romans 1.18, for the orgizo, the wrath, the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It describes a deepening, growing, building, wrathful anger. God's anger is building, by the way. But here's the thing. He can control it. Though his anger increases, he will only unleash it, unleashing his righteous wrath at the right and just time. I don't have the same ability to control that. And Jesus is saying murder comes from the slow burn that eventually will consume a human heart and cause one to act out. So he doesn't start with murder. He goes way before that and he says, check your anger at the door. Jesus always goes for the heart. And that's all he's doing. He's not contradicting the commands. He spoke the commands, but now he's giving them at the heart level. He's drawing back from the behavioral uh, statements of no, and he's coming right to the heart and saying, that's where you got to look. If you're just trying to stop yourself from murder, it's too late. You're already too far down the road. If you're filled with hate and bitterness and anger, that fuming, burdening, smoldering indignation toward another person, you're going to get to where you can't control it. And it overcomes. And the same is true with the seventh word, adultery. It's a heart problem. If you look in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. First time I read that, I believe I was a teenager and realized I was an adulterer. Talking about Southern California beaches, you could not go to the beach without lusting, without the eyes going, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I remember I did, I did youth ministry out in Virginia for several years before moving back to Southern California. I will never forget the first day that I took all of our students from our Southern California youth group out to the beach for an afternoon, Newport Beach. Oh, my laundry. I was so thankful I had dark sunglasses. It's like, oh, I can't believe it. Because on the East Coast, you know, I'm fronting, the weather didn't really allow for, you know, but the skin on that beach, it was unbelievable. And of course, this verse comes to mind. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, what our world says is, it's okay. It's just window shopping. Really? You're shopping? <laughs> because if you're shopping, you have intention to buy. Jesus spoke with such absolute authority about the hidden things of the heart. Adultery is a heart issue. It always starts in the heart before the behavior ultimately follows. Murder is a heart issue. It always starts in the heart before the behavior ultimately follows. Same is true with the eighth word. Back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, no stealing. You shall not steal. Now you read that and you think, okay, wow, good. There's at least one of these commandments that I have not violated, really. <laughs> think it through. By the way, did you know that stealing violates both the eighth commandment and the third commandment? The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 7. And stealing violates that commandment. How so? Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not want and be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? Or, listen, 
that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, makes this statement that stealing profanes the name of God. Well, how does stealing profane the name of Yahweh? Because theft declares God is not a good enough provider. There's something I need that God has not given me. There's something I want that he didn't provide. And in stealing, this heart problem declares that God hasn't given me everything that I obviously need. So he's not a good provider for me. Do you know the Lord takes this whole idea of theft even further? See, there's a far more subtle and unseen theft that takes place among his people always has. Malachi 3 verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Now, I'm not accusing anyone in this fellowship <laughs> of stealing from God in terms of tithes and offerings. In fact, I've told you the faithfulness of the Bridge Fellowship in these difficult times has truly been remarkable to see. It's just been amazing. Can I tell you that the, the giving in our fellowship has been up, it's up 13% this year over last year through this season. I mean, those who have, have looked at the numbers, we've looked at it and just gone, wow. And, and by the way, not looking at individual people's giving, I have no idea, but I know what the, the big number is, the weekly or the monthly. I'll hear that from time to time, and it's, it's mind-blowing. But there is a truth to the fact that when we, are not, when we are not trusting God financially in our tithes and offerings, that we are actually taking what is rightfully His because everything I have is rightfully His. And as I've talked about before, he says, hey, I want you to keep 90%, but I want you to trust me with 10. And when I hold that back, he, God, refers to that as robbing, as theft. If you personally feel convicted about it at all today, I just want to encourage you, pray. Just pray about it. Well, I can't afford to give. Talk to him because he's the one who makes it possible. Malachi 3.10, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And those who are in the practice of tithing will tell you story after story after story after story of getting to places where they didn't think they were going to be able to afford this, that, or the other, and God provided what was necessary. He always does. No stealing. See, the heart of a loving father is to teach his children to learn to trust him even with our most basic needs. So, no murder, no adultery, no theft. How we doing? When Jesus takes these things and makes them matters of the heart, how are we really doing with these commandments? Not too good, if we're being honest. And the same thing holds true of the ninth word, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this is, again, specifically lying about or against another person. And it does include gossip and slander and defamation of character. Because the things we might say about a person behind their back are never fully informed. We make assumptions based on what we think is going on and we'll speak a word that is against a neighbor that's not informed. And my friends, that is bearing false witness. Unless you happen to be the person, you don't know their heart. No bearing false witness. And by the way, this one was intensely felt by Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They didn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, 
This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. You know what? That's a direct quote from Jesus. We can read it in John chapter 2. So these two men came up and they said, oh, well, this is what he said. So you'd say, well, that's not a false witness. That's a true witness. No, it's a false witness because they shaded the truth. The high priest stood up and said, do you not answer? What is it that these, pen, that, that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. I love this about that. Jesus would not keep silent. And he said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. Now listen, those two final false witnesses told the truth. They repeated what they heard from the mouth of Jesus, but what they did was misconstrue his words to skewer him. And that's bearing false witness. Well, that's what he said. It's adding our own implication, again, with false assumption to, to turn against a neighbor. What is the call of Jesus? To love your neighbor as yourself. Is it love? when I speak against a brother in any form or fashion. But can you imagine Jesus giving a commandment that he knew would be violated against him one day? No bearing false witness. Now you might say in all of this, well, if God knew we couldn't keep the commandments, why did he give them? Why any of these? And that's an especially difficult question for those who think the Ten Commandments are boxes to be checked on an entry form for heaven. And a lot of people think that in this world. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a Ten Commandments. I keep the Ten Commandments. I'll go to heaven. Do you keep, keep the Ten Commandments? Well, sure. Can you tell them to me? <laughs> well, I, I know something about, you know, you don't murder. I haven't murdered anybody. Don't steal, I think, is in there. I haven't stolen anything. How many people even know what the Ten Commandments are? A set of rules. So that's what they think. It's a set of rules, and I just got to follow those rules, and that guarantees entrance into a blessed eternity. And then you turn to Matthew 5, and you start to hear Jesus explain what they really mean and go straight to the heart, and you realize they're impossible. You can't do it. Brothers and sisters, perfect adherence to the Ten Commandments was never expected of humanity. In fact, perfect adherence to the Ten Commandments was only ever expected of one man. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed. Why, Paul? Because the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the law or under the tutor. You're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ who alone kept the law. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even though even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, after laying down the law that we could not keep, he laid down the price that we could not pay. Jesus did this. He gave his life. And by the way, he didn't just give his life. First, he perfectly kept the law flawless to the heart of the 10 words was Jesus. And after living that life of flawless following of the law, keeping the law, loving the law in his own heart, in his behavior, in every word and deed and action, then he went to the cross, the perfect man, and he paid our price, the price for our sin. He became sin who knew no sin, Paul says. 
And John 1:17 tells us, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Isn't that marvelous? That understanding, it, it changes everything for us that Jesus kept the law and then died for those who could not keep it. Look around. That's us. But Rick, you left off the 10th word. Been through all the others. What about number 10? You know what's interesting is Jesus left off the 10th word too. What's the 10th word? Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jesus left that one out. Do you remember when? Mark chapter 10, turn over there for a moment. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and watch what he does. And by the way, this passage I think is vital to understanding the 10th word, the 10th command. Mark 10, 17, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. The other gospels tell us this man was very wealthy. He was a young man. Some even refer to him as the rich young ruler. And this man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Which boxes am I supposed to check? Where's the form? And Jesus said to him, and I love the first response, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't have called me good. He's just pointing out the reality of who the young man was really talking to. And then he says in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Six, seven, eight, nine. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Oh, there's number five. He left it out. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Jesus either forgot <laughs> or intentionally left out the 10th commandment. Why? Why doesn't he mention do not covet? And you Bible students, we have all been trained up to understand that, that it's because covetousness was an issue for the rich young man. And, and that's true, I think, because the Bible seems to indicate that that was a problem for him. Well, so Jesus left it off to mess with him, to play with it, to toy with it? No, no, no. Read on. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And he said, one thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Listen carefully here. The 10th commandment is the only one that can only be perceived in the heart. Of the 10, it is the only one that I can't measure in you. I can't, I don't know if you're coveting or not. That's a heart thing. I can see murder, I can see theft, I can see adultery taking place, I can see all the other things. They're, they're behavioral no's, no, no, no. We get to the 10th one, summing up the entire list and suddenly it is only heart, don't covet. Can you imagine putting that one in the law books in America? You're not allowed to covet. Well, how are you gonna, how are you gonna police that? That's totally internal. I could be sitting here coveting your hat right now and no one would know. I could have deep desire to be wearing Les's mask and no one would figure it out. I could say Susan's blanket looks awfully warm. I wish I had it right now. No one would know. Because coveting of the 10 is the only one that is completely a heart issue. The others are all driven by heart, don't get me wrong. But he ends with the heart at the end of the 10 commandments. Paul said in Romans chapter seven, verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And he says, I would not have known about coveting 
if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So of the Ten Commandments, it is the singular heart problem that is, in my opinion, behind all the rest. Because the breaking of the rest of all these laws comes from loving myself before my neighbor. And when I love myself first, I tend to want what others have. I will covet in that behavior. J. Alec Mottier rightly calls coveting, quote, the interpreting clause of the whole Decalogue. No coveting. And Yaakov calls it the root of all lawlessness. James, you know, in, in all the protesting going on right now, you know where you start to see that it is really not about a social issue? Is when people begin to loot. When people begin to bust down stores and go in and steal TVs, that has nothing to do with social issues. That's just, I want that. That is sin at the core. And James chapter four, verse one says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in all your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Coveting. It is at the base of all the others. And so rightly so, the Lord then ends the Decalogue with you shall not covet because that's the one that drives all the rest. And here's the good news. And there is good news. There's the law of God, and yet there is a higher law that he has set forth. Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. That's the law. That's the one we are called to live by. We are invited to live by because we live by the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. He kept the law which otherwise would bring about our sin and death. He made the whole thing doable. Paul described these last days as difficult times. It's not lost on me that here in America there has been a concerted demonic effort to remove God's 10 words from our society, to take them down from courthouses, from public squares. They're too convicting or they're too restrictive or they're just too judgmental. No wonder America's in so much trouble right now. Denying the very words that were the, the substance, they were the undergirding of, of our very constitution. How do we navigate these times? Perilous, difficult, hard to do, hard to take, hard to approach, hard to bear times. How do we do this? Love God and love people. Love God and love people, and listen, when we say love people, when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about before yourself. He's saying, Hillary is more important to me than I am. Danny is more important to me than I am. I, I'm not, <laughs> hear me on this, because I love both Hillary and Danny and all y'all, but here's the truth, I don't always look at Danny as more important to me than I am. Because I got stuff to do. I got a family to take care of. You know, I got to put food on my table. And so we're all in that place where the call to love each other, it's a challenge, it really is. And I love Danny, he knows that. But there is a, a challenge in this to begin to elevate other people ahead of myself, ahead of my desires, ahead of my wants, ahead of my needs. Well, I don't want to do that. Yeah, but it's better for other people if you do. Love God. How? By loving your neighbor. He put the two together. 
And Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or em empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And if you know the passage, you know he went on to describe what that attitude looked like. It was the Word made flesh. He became a man. He became a bondservant of men. He died a bondservant of men emptied himself. It's just, when you really pause and think about what Jesus did, <laughs> people say, I have trouble putting on a mask. Well, Jesus Christ put on flesh. We have no idea what it's like to put on something we don't want to wear when we compare ourselves to him. Love God. Love people. Because Jesus said, on these Two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Would you all stand up with me? The giving of the Ten Commandments, I, I think, would be incomplete if we didn't see what happened immediately after. That in verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So listen, listen. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Everybody stood afar. One man approached God. You know what Jesus would say to you and say to me this morning? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. James 4, verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. The keeping of the commandments, the loving of God and the loving our neighbors as ourselves depends on that one thing, that we draw near to God. And he invites you and me to draw near to him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Profound and deep and rich and so much more here even than we're able to cover in a short hour. And we're so thankful that your word stands before us. And this morning, Father, we teach, we go through, we read the 10 commandments because we do receive them as your word. But unlike the people of Israel trembling at the foot of the mountain, Lord Jesus, because you went before us, we now draw near to you with confidence. We draw near in boldness. And we do draw near seeking help in times of need, in time of difficulty. My prayer, Lord, first beginning right here with the Bridge Fellowship, is that we would love each other more than ourselves. And I pray that starting with me. Teach me to love my brothers and sisters more than I love myself to put the needs of others first, to care more for my brothers and sisters than I do for myself. And I pray that would become in these last days the defining characteristic of this fellowship of believers. But I pray it, Father, for the whole church that this begins with the household of God, that what defines us in this world is nothing else but our love for you and our love for other people. We love you first, Lord, which means we will stand by your word. We will trust in your word. We, we seek to keep your word before us, ever before us, as the standard, both for moral truth, but also for grace. But we love other people, Father, and, and need to be taught to and to learn to love other people more and better, showing the very grace that you showed us. 
Father, would you extend that in and among us and through us and in your church in the world today? Not to be seen, Father, as a political body, not to be seen, Father, as a self-righteous body, but to be seen as we are to be the body of Christ and a loving body. Father, I pray for those who are struggling in this time, especially those who don't know Jesus and are so fearful in these difficult last days. And I pray that the doors would swing wide open, that they might draw near to you because you promised you'd draw near to them. If you are here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus, or maybe your life has been a faltering one and you're uncertain of your standing before God, I invite you right now to pray with me and to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life, to draw near to God. If that's you, just, would you just pray right now these simple words, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I feel like I'm standing afar off but I wanna draw near to you. And I realize now the only way to do that is through the blood of, of Christ. So Jesus, I receive your sacrifice for me and I believe in your resurrected life forever. And I declare this morning, you are Lord and Savior of my life. Would you draw near to me now and lead me through these last days? to bring me home. In Jesus' name, amen. <music>